Good morning. Those who were blessed to be in Blake's Sunday School class today got us off to a great start, Blake. I do thank you for that and uh, just hit us square in the eyes with the sovereignty of God. Then we come in here and we read about that in our, you know, as our responsive reading about the servant who's going to find a, a wife for Isaac. Just happens to. This woman just happens to pop up, right? No, God is sovereign over that. And we're going we're gonna to see it here today again in Acts 20, sorry, in Acts 8. In Acts 8, we will see the sovereignty of God played out here. This is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. I've kind of titled mine as a heaven-sent hitchhiker, a heaven-sent hitchhiker. We'll begin by reading Acts 8, beginning in verse 26. We'll go through the remainder of the chapter. Verse 26, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news of Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And if you're holding a new King James, you'll read this. Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through, he preached to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So again, this is that well-known passage of the Ethiopian eunuch, titled A Heaven-Sent Hitchhiker for My Own Taste. Now, we do have to remember, Philip has played a prominent role here in the last two sections we, we read. You know, we really read about him. We, he was introduced to us back in Acts 6. He was one of the seven men who was full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom that the apostles and the, and the church chose to tend to some needs there in the church. Then as persecution come upon the church at the stoning of Stephen, they're, they're scattered. And we find Philip down in Samaria, or up in Samaria, Exactly. He's up in Samaria and he's evangelizing the Samaritans who were hated by the Jews. And God is doing a miraculous work up there. Many are 
the, the Samaritans are coming to faith. And then we read at verse 25, we see this connection right there. In verse 25, it says, They returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, we know for certain that that's going to be referring to Peter and John, who had went up to Samaria to kind of check on the work, and then the Holy Spirit was imparted on all those Samaritans. And they're returning back to Jerusalem. Now, if you remember, I believe that they refers to Philip as well. Philip probably accompanied Peter and John as on, the return trip, on the return trip to Jerusalem, maybe to give a more full account of what happened in Samaria. So they, my opinion, all three returned to Jerusalem and they preached the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans on their way back. I base that on, in verse 26, we read that an angel was going to instruct Philip here to go south on the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. To me, that, tends, that, that leans toward Philip already being in Jerusalem. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't you know, fight you over that. He's, he was being in Jerusalem, my opinion, and now he's being called back out onto the mission field. But if you want to hold to the fact that he's in Samaria, if he's in Samaria, Philip is in the midst of a revival. If he's in Jerusalem, he's actually busy tending to the needs of the church. Either way, Philip's doing God's work. Tending to the physical needs of those in Jerusalem or evangelizing Samaria, Philip is busy. And then verse 26, we read, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go. And, but, he's, but he's busy. Do you not think the Lord knows that? So he tells him to arise and go. Go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. So he's told when to go, now, now. He's told where to go, south on the road that leads to Gaza. The why, we're not given. But yet we see Philip is obedient. In verse 27, he arose and went. He arose and went. Suddenly, we're fixing to see the answer as to why he, he's gone. He arose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So now we know why. It now it's becoming evident why God was sending him on this desert road. This Ethiopian official returning home to Ethiopia from Jerusalem where he had been worshiping. Now I'm going to make the case to you here that this eunuch is not a pure Gentile. He's not going to be a pure Gentile. I think he had some, some Jewish lineage in his history. I mean, this is not going to be foreign to Scripture. Just in a few chapters, Acts 16, we're going to run into a man named Timothy. There, Timothy has a Jewish mother who is a believer. He has a Greek father. So, you know, we, we do see this. Not to mention that we just finished a whole section concerning the Samaritans, who were half Jew, half Gentiles. So, I think Luke probably places this here together for this very reason that we haven't transitioned from, to the pure Gentiles quite yet. 
I, there's a couple of things that we can base this off of. Uh, chapter 9. In chapter 9, we're going to see Saul of Tarsus. The Lord is going to convert Saul of Tarsus for the purpose of carrying the Lord's name to the Gentiles. When we get to, to Acts 10, we see there that Cornelius will be converted. And when he's converted, Peter emphasizes this as a breakthrough to the Gentiles. You know, this, this is a breakthrough of the, the Gentiles coming to salvation, the pure Gentiles, we could say. Uh, so perhaps Luke places this here following the Samaritans, intending it to be understood in that light. It doesn't really make a big difference in how we understand the passage. I'm just throwing this up. Now, you may say, well, this, this eunuch, this Ethiopian, if you're saying he's you know, part Jew or has some Jewish lineage, he's in, a high, he's in a high position in Ethiopia. He's definitely in a high position. He's in charge of all her money, all her treasure, but look, that's not foreign to Scripture either. Think Joseph. Joseph was second in command only to Pharaoh. Joseph was in complete control of everything that happened in Egypt. You could actually think of a more recent example of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a Jew, and he was the cupbearer to the king. If you were a king, you didn't trust anyone any more than you trusted your cupbearer. So, you know, maybe this is why the eunuch was in Jerusalem worshiping as well. You know, he just had that, that lineage, that background, that backdrop. And it says here he's an Ethiopian, he's a eunuch, he's a court official. Look, that's not a unique court official, it's a eunuch. Who is a court official? A eunuch is not, again, is not a synonym for official. You know, some try to conflate the two. They're, they're, Luke uses two Distinct Greek words. His description of this is crystal clear. He was an official who was a eunuch. And a eunuch was a man without man parts. A eunuch without male parts. They were eunuchs by birth, and they were eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, i.e. castration. And this man had great trust. He had great authority in Ethiopia. He was an official of Candace, we read here, but Candace, again, is not a name. I know we, I have a cousin named Candace, so, you know, we do name our kids that, but, but Candace is more of a, a dynastic title. You could think Caesar. You could think Pharaoh. That's what Candace implies. It's a, more of a common name or a dynastic name. And so Candace, queen of Ethiopia, and your mind may run to the Ethiopia of today, which is it much. It's just not. But look, the Ethiopian in biblical times was all of Africa south of Egypt. It was a massive, massive land base. So we have this enormous nation. We have the queen's right-hand man, the man in charge of all her treasure. And, and you just have to note that this official, a man of his position, would have naturally had an entourage on this journey. He would, have had, he would have had security. So this man and all that accompany him have embarked on this long, long, long trip. Roughly five months one way. So he's going to be absent from his post 
as an official for roughly a year. You know, by the time he gets there, does some worship in Jerusalem and visits or whatever, and he returns. Five months, one way, on a desert road, with the risk of robbers and vandals naturally being very, very high. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to use these details that Luke provides us with to paint a picture of this man's heart. I mean, the, the effort that this guy went through to worship. And it's obvious we can see that God is drawing this man. God is preparing his heart. And so this eunuch had come to Jerusalem to worship. And although with his physical condition, this man would not have been allowed to participate in Jewish worship. Deuteronomy 23 reads this way. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. End quote. So this man, this eunuch, was forbidden from entering the temple. He had traveled to Ethiopia, to Jerusalem, to worship, and he was prevented from drawing near. That we can know for certain. He came there with hope, he left hopeless. He came there with questions, he left with questions. And now he's returning home. We see here he's, read, he's, he's going home and he's reading the prophet Isaiah. Now I do think we run past things when we, when we read this because we, we have the Word of God so prevalent. You know, it's, many of us have many, many, many copies of Scripture at our homes. But very, very few men in this day had a personal copy of any portion of God's Word. Aside from the fact that many were illiterate, it was expensive. It's been estimated that it would have taken roughly three days to copy Isaiah. Three days to copy Isaiah. So you have the scribes' daily wages that someone has to pay for. That's how they made a living. And you have the um, cost of material. And we, we do have a couple of ideas on that. You know, at, at the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was a, um, the scroll of Isaiah. It was an uncovered copy of Isaiah. And it didn't contain all of Isaiah, but majority of Isaiah. They refer to it as the Isaiah scroll, real clever. But they have this scroll, and the scroll is anywhere around, I think it said 12 inches wide, but it's 24 feet long. And it doesn't even contain all of Isaiah. And that's just one book. That's just one book. So, so again, having a copy of the entirety of God's Word in your fingertips is, is something we really take for granted. So I, I kind of hesitate to attach a dollar value to what this scroll would have cost this man. Um, I guess if you made me... I'd say an easy five, six hundred bucks, probably more, maybe pushing upwards of a thousand dollars. It was more than most people could afford. They couldn't read it to begin with, and, and it's not like many of them lived in luxury. You know, the money they need, they use for food. But a man in this, a man with his position and power and influence, he could afford it. So he buys this scroll. My opinion, he buys a scroll when he's in Jerusalem. And he's returning home, and he's 
reading this scroll. So this man is literally on the road reading a text. Thought some of y'all may get that. Went right over, I guess. <laughs> Thank you, Blake. All right. So anyway, so he, he's, he's on the way home, returning from Jerusalem, from worshiping in Jerusalem. He, 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 he's empty. He didn't get, he just wasn't filled. He, just, he was looking for something he couldn't find in that empty religion in Jerusalem. And we read in verse 29. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So we had the when, arise and go. Now, now's the answer to that. We have the where, down the desert road that leads to Gaza. We, we picked up on the why because you have this eunuch who's on his way home to Ethiopia. And now we know what he is to do. He is to go to that chariot, that one, and stay near it. Stay near it. Join it. Verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? Go to that chariot and join it. Go to that chariot and stay near it. And what do we see Philip do? Philip ran to him. Philip ran. Look, earlier we, we, we saw the, the angel said, Rise and go. And the next thing we see, Philip arose and went. Here the Spirit instructs him to go, and he runs. He runs, he joins this chariot, he walks alongside of it, trots alongside of it. And it says he heard him reading. He heard the eunuch reading, which that implies that he was reading aloud. Right? I don't know if this was a cultural thing, if this is what they did. But whatever the reason that this eunuch was in his chariot reading Isaiah aloud... It was just the ammunition that Philip needed. So Philip asked at the end of verse 31, Do you understand what you're reading? You see, Philip takes the initiative. But you've got to ask, how would this question be received? You know, a man with his authority and power being asked if he needed assistance from this scruffling traveler. You know, most of the time people who have this kind of of influence and power are, are arrogant and in need of none, in need of no help. But we see in verse 31 the unique answers. He said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. How can I? Look, the humility of this eunuch shows that God is working on him. God is working on this man. A high-level official exposes his own ignorance, his own inability to understand the Scripture. He's lost. He's seeking for something he can't find. It wasn't in Jerusalem. It wasn't in religion. He needed a guide. And God provided one. And so this... Here we go again. This eunuch invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. So God sent Philip, who appeared to be a traveler. Now he's a hitchhiker, a heaven-sent hitchhiker. So we have Philip. We've seen Philip the deacon or doing deacon work in Acts 6. We've seen Philip the evangelist in the early part of Acts 8. Now we have Philip the guide. 
God is really using this man, but he's so willing to go. Arise and go, and he goes. Go to that chariot, and he runs. Makes you wonder if you're not being used by God, maybe. Maybe there's a reason. Verse 32 through 33. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep... He was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before shears are silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. So what, this passage of Isaiah that he's reading, this portion of Scripture, is what we know as Isaiah 53. They didn't have chapters and verses back then, but that is exactly what he's reading. And the language he's reading indicates that he's reading from the Septuagint. Would it would have been the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So he's reading what we call Isaiah 53. That is a passage on the suffering servant. And there is not a better Old Testament text to preach Christ from than this one in Isaiah. The Lord tees up Philip. Philip doesn't miss. God had been preparing Philip for this, and God had been preparing this eunuch. Look, it's not, it's not only that every little detail is known by God. Every little detail is providentially prepared by God. He doesn't simply know these things. He causes these things to be. God is completely sovereign over this whole event. However, you know, the personal responsibility aspect of this cannot be overlooked. This eunuch was seeking God a whole year out of his life to worship, to find peace, to find joy, to find answers. You know, the verse, seek and you will find. We see Philip, you know, he's told again to arise and go. He arose and went. He's told to go and he runs. You know, one commentator put it this way. Had he not ran, the eunuch would have been out of Isaiah 53 and reading Isaiah 54. Now, I know that's, that's kind of just being a little facetious, you know, but it's, it's, nonetheless, it's, it's an interesting point, you know. Not that you can't lead someone to Christ throughout the, the text in Isaiah 54, 55, or wherever, but Isaiah 53 was a direct path. It was the easiest path forward. So Philip's effort got him there at the most opportune time. Maybe our lackadaisical attitude makes things more difficult for us at times. <laughs> so next time, think about this. Next time you go to a fast food restaurant, and I'm not going to name any names of any fast food restaurants, you place your order, and there are those there meant to serve you. They're dragging their feet, taking their merry time. Real half-hearted effort going on back there. Look in the mirror and ask yourself, God, is this what you see in me? We need to be more like Philip. We need to run to do God's work. Run to do the Lord's work. And maybe things will be easier. Instead of 
dragging it out and waiting and ended up, you know, just to where it wasn't. Not that God's not sovereign over all that. You, you have to understand, I'm, I believe that. But he, here he is. He pops up right alongside that chariot, right at the time he's reading about this one who's wounded for our transgressions. And then he asks, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And he, no, can you, can you guide? How should I know? He's ran alongside this chariot, overheard the eunuch reading, initiated this conversation, and the eunuch humbly seeks his guidance. Philip climbs up into the chariot, you know, and the question then is posed, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Is, 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 is Isaiah talking about himself? Is he the one who was wounded for our transgression? Who's he talking about? Is it Jeremiah? Who is it? Now the Jews, you know, the Pharisees, they had all sorts of answers for this because they didn't see the Messiah in it. Because the, the Messiah, was, that was what they early on saw this pointing to a Messiah. But when Jesus so clearly fulfilled that, they had to change who this referred to. So he's asking. He's seeking. He really wants to know the truth. He's seeking. John MacArthur says this, quote, Simon the sorcerer, we just read about in that previous passage, Simon wanted the power. This eunuch wants the truth. End quote. So, again, whom, I ask, does this prophet say this? Does he say it about himself or does he say it about someone else? Now, let me tell you how Philip answers this. Or let me tell you how Philip doesn't answer this. Philip doesn't start this the way that many, many would today. We know, I was in Jerusalem, an angel came to me. Angel told me to go down that road. Angel told me to go to that chariot. Look, Philip never once mentions his angelic visit or the angelic visitation. He don't mention it not one time. Why? Because it's not important. It's not important. Look, this man has a question that's troubling his soul. Who is this referring to? What, don't make it about you. Don't make it about, you know, who's visited you and this word from God. Look, those who claim consistent heavenly visitation, or they claim a specific or a fresh word from God, they're usually doing it for self-promotion. They're doing it because they don't see their authority bound up in the pages of Scripture. You know, their authority comes from outside the Word of God. Their authority is their own imagination. And they're just taking the name of God and they're rubber stamping it on their own vain imaginations. So we see how Philip does answer this. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Philip opened his mouth, beginning with this scripture, and he told him the good news about Jesus. Not a personal story about a visit from an angel, which was legit, by the way. He begins with scripture. He opens his mouth. You know, the passage we read earlier, it was referring to Jesus. He opened not his mouth in Isaiah 53. But here, Philip opens his mouth. The Lord is going to open the eunuch's heart. The Lord is going to open his eyes. And Philip begins here, and he's going to take them straight to the cross. So the question is, how does Philip answer this? What does Philip use? Scripture, specifically the Old Testament, 
The New Testament wasn't penned at this point. Peter, as we're reading about those thousands and thousands that are, are being converted in the early, book, early parts of Acts, it's the Old Testament that Peter's using to point people to Jesus. Look, there's a gospel message in the Old Testament. We don't need to avoid it. We need to know it. But it's, I love the way that, that Philip just he responds to his question. The guy had a question, and Philip just responds to it. He answers. He's, he's ready. You know, I, I, if, I had to, if I had to wager, I guess, I would say when Philip went to Samaria, since the Samaritans really only held to the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, I'd be willing to gamble that Philip used those five books to lead them to Christ. He meets them where they're at. He's telling them what they, what they know and pointing them to Christ with that. I guess if I could jump on one more hobby horse real quick, because it happened to me. Um, again, the, we know with certainty here that this eunuch was reading the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. But Philip, being a Hellenist, was a Greek-speaking Jew, so this was kind of right in line with what he had. But had this eunuch posed this question in Jerusalem to the Pharisees, they would have bashed him. They... they, they Dis, they had great disdain for the Septuagint. You know, they actually viewed it, I think, as a golden calf. They thought you needed to stick with the Hebrew. Why would you have a translation? Which is, in case you're wondering, that's silly because the majority of the New Testament writers quote the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. Jesus consistently quoted the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. So there's no golden calf there. They kind of miss that one. But what you don't need to do when someone asks you this question, which the Pharisees would have been prone to do, is say, you need to go get you a real Bible. Don't, I've had that happen. And it's really discouraging as a young Christian when you ask someone a question and the response you get is go get a real Bible. Don't, don't, take, if you, that's just, that's just deflection. Take what they're asking you and answer what they're asking you. They're young. He, this guy's lost. He don't need to know about that stuff. This guy's asking, to whom is this speaking about? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And Philip is going to open up this, the Scripture at this point and take him straight to the cross. Now, we don't have everything that Philip said, but the implication here is that Philip discussed much, so much that we know that the eunuch knew of his need to be baptized. And so we see in verse 36, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? What prevents me from being baptized? Look, in Jerusalem, he was prevented from entering into worship. I think that's what, lie, that what is lying behind the question here. Is there any, is there any reason that I'm not welcomed to practice this faith like other believers. That's what he's asking. In Jerusalem, again, he was prevented from practicing his faith. Here, he's asking this very... It's a sincere question he's asking. Is it, what prevents me from being baptized? Now, when you get to verse 37, that the ESV is going to have in the footnotes... You're going to see, if you have a new King James, King James, it's going to be here. It reads this way. Then Philip said, if you believe me with all your heart, <laughs> if you believe with all your heart, you may. 
And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Look, this verse, verse 37, is not found in the majority of manuscripts. It's not found in the oldest manuscripts. It's not found in the oldest Bibles. And look, there's no, there's no modern plot to erase this verse. They actually add it in the footnotes. So they're not trying to hide it from you. But what matters most isn't translation. What matters most is what God inspired Luke to write. And it's more likely than not that this verse was added later than it was taken away earlier. Right? The, 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 the data and the facts actually line up to better the fact that it was added, not taken away. Look, you need to, do, you need to kind of come to grips with this, that, that God chose to preserve His Word through human copyists. And these copyists were not inspired. These copyists were, were not infallible. But God has given us over 6,000 manuscripts. 6,000, so you can have great confidence that the Bible you hold in your lap is, you can have confidence in that Word of God that you hold in your lap. So the, but the addition of this verse doesn't add to this passage. The absence of this verse doesn't add to the passage. So the question is, what prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded, verse 38 and 39, and he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when he come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. They both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. He immersed them. And when they both come up out of the water, look, baptism by its very name and by this description, baptism is immersion. You know, only really someone with an agenda to prove would, would, would attempt to prove otherwise. But here, we're, we're specifically told, and back up in verse 26, that this was a desert place. This was a desert place. So the question you have to ask yourself is, do you really think that this entourage, this caravan that's going back, and it has this high-ranking Ethiopian in there, that they're going back and no one bothered to carry any water with them? Well, I'm quite certain that they had jugs of water with them. I'm quite certain of that. So again, if sprinkling was the mode of baptism, this is the perfect scenario for this to be practiced. Desert, road, jug of water, right? Uh, just not, not trying to beat a dead horse here, but look, God in His perfect timing here, He had the eunuch reading Isaiah 53, right when Philip pulled up alongside, and now it just so happened that they're passing by a body of water a big enough body of water that they both can get down into. So again, I ask, why would God, who have arranged every small detail throughout this account, cause them to pass by a body of water when the eunuch was seeking baptism? Luke's including all this for a reason. Look, here's water. And they get down into it and they come up out of it. This, this Passages like this is why we practice baptism by immersion. It's why we do what we do. And this baptism is not intended 
to save. You know, we don't believe in baptism, I mean, salvation through baptism. It's actually just a picture of their death. It's a picture of their union with Christ. John MacArthur puts it this way. This eunuch not only confessed his faith personally to Philip, but openly in front of the entire entourage. Everyone who was on that trip in that caravan saw what this eunuch did, this high-ranking eunuch did. This is what baptism represents. Then we read at the end of verse 39, it says that... um, that the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Now, some are going to attribute this to a miracle, similar to the account of Elijah, how Elijah was just carried up. Look, and I, and I promise, I don't want to explain away miracles if that's what's intended to be understood here. But this word is going to be used in other places. It's actually used in Acts 23. In Acts 23, verse 10, we read there, this is about Paul. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid of what Paul, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So that, that's what that word implies, that taking away by force. And there in Acts 23, the, the, the guard is going to go take Paul away from that mob that's about to just rip him to shreds. So is this a miracle? Did God just snatch, as the legacy, stands it, as the legacy standard uh, translates it, does God just snatch Philip away from them? Or did he just pull him away from him in this sense? That the, the lack of shock on the, on the part of the eunuch is surprising to me. You know, the eunuch doesn't seem stunned at all that this happens. He just goes on his way rejoicing. Well, when the Lord was carried up in Acts 1, we have the apostles standing there who saw incredible miracles, incredible things. And they're just standing there dumbfounded, looking up at the sky. But this eunuch just goes on about his business rejoicing. So maybe the implication to me is this. This eunuch had been on quite a journey to find the truth. And he's been on a journey to find the truth, to find someone to guide him. And here, Philip is going to be the answer to both. So my opinion is the eunuch didn't want Philip to leave. Ride with me longer. Teach me more. Stay with me. Don't go. But God had other plans for Philip. And he snatches Philip away from the eunuch in that sense. So look, whether it's in a miraculous way or simply just instructing Philip to go, as we've seen him instruct him throughout this, we've seen all along Philip is obedient to the Lord and he leaves. We read in verse 40, But Philip found himself, or Philip was found at Azotus, and he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. He preached the gospel to all the towns. That's imperfect. That means it's an ongoing action that he just, he constantly was going around gossiping about the gospel. Look, and then we see that until he came to Caesarea. That's kind of where he would be headquarters. We'll, we'll read this later on. Um, he seemed to remain there at Caesarea. So a couple of things to think of as we close up. The sovereignty of God here cannot be overlooked. God has prepared this eunuch's heart. This eunuch has been earnestly seeking God. Philip has been a hands-on believer. He's doing deacon work in Jerusalem. He's evangelizing Samaria. He's doing the one-on-one witnessing here to this eunuch. He knows the powers in the word. 
He's well equipped to handle the word. He's prepared for this moment. And he's willing to go, no hesitation. So we begin, we see the sovereignty of God overlaid there with the, the responsibility of man. We also see the fact that Philip seems to be colorblind in that sense. I don't mean that, I mean that figuratively, I guess. But, you know, earlier he was in Samaria and he was witnessing up there to half-breeds, those who were despised by the Jews. Here he's evangelizing a, an Ethiopian, a different race. You know, so Philip doesn't seem to have an issue with that. He doesn't see the barriers that sometimes prohibit us from going, going forth. Look, this whole passage also, this whole passage is not going to make any sense. It doesn't make any sense with a primitive view of salvation, a hard shell view of salvation, a hyper-Calvinistic view of salvation. This whole passage just doesn't add up with that mindset. It's pointless in their theology. But we know the gospel is necessary, and we know that God uses men to get his message out. His message that saves souls. A few more thoughts, and we'll, we'll end it. Stephen Cole, I don't know that much about him, but he made a pretty interesting observation here. He said in verse 27, we see that they had come to Jerusalem... And was worshiping, talking about the eunuch. The eunuch had came to Jerusalem, was worshiping in Jerusalem, and then he's returning to Ethiopia. So he just asked the question, why didn't the Lord direct one of the apostles in Jerusalem to share the gospel with him when he was there? Then we read in verse 40 that Philip finds his way in Samaria and kind of just plants in Samaria. Okay, later we're going to see this in Acts 10, that God is going to send Peter... Did I say Samaria? I meant Caesarea. All right, so let's back up. Philip finds himself in Caesarea, and that's kind of where he ends up being headquartered down there. Well, there's also a centurion there, a Gentile centurion named Cornelius, and God is going to send Peter to Caesarea to witness to Cornelius. So the question is, why didn't God just send Philip to Cornelius? And then... Stephen Cole just concludes there. He says, look, God's way are not our ways. Our job is not to question the Lord, but to be obedient. End quote. And that's exactly what we see Philip doing throughout all this. apologize if I was a little bit long. I pray that, um, I know God's word is worth it. I just pray that, um, you know, it sticks with you as we go forth and we actually have more of a spirit of Philip, more obedient, willing, eager spirit that we see Philip had. Would please stand.